Hi there and welcome to another podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. At the time of recording, the COVID-19 pandemic is in full swing. And along with the development of an effective vaccine, the search for evidence-based interventions remains our top priority. Joining me on the podcast today is Colin MacArthur. Colin is an intensivist and the Director of Research at the Auckland City Hospital in New Zealand and is the co-lead for the ANZ arm of the REMAP-CAP study, which today releases the results of its first domain study, corticosteroids. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Todd. Colin, why are corticosteroids potentially beneficial in severe COVID-19? Well, the uh, rationale is based on the inflammatory response, uh, the, an overactive immune system um, damaging the lungs in particular, but other parts of, of the body. So many strategies have uh, uh, been proposed that might dampen down that immune response, some of them more specific. Uh, steroids are one of those, but they're a more general effect on dampening down an overactive immune uh, system. The problem is, though, that uh, in other um, diseases, um, we've seen potentially adverse effects from reducing uh, the body's immune uh, response to a viral infection. And uh, there is a suggestion of potential harm in, say, influenza, for example. And in a related um, coronavirus disease, MERS, there is data showing um, prolongation of viral shedding when steroids are used. On the other side of the coin, we see uh, some suggestion that um, the development of inflammatory-based lung injury uh, with ARDS uh, may be ameliorated uh, somewhat with the use of steroids. So there's a bit of a mixed signal uh, there at the beginning uh, before we really got down to uh, assessing this in a proper uh, randomised controlled trial setting. Now, Colin, um, corticosteroids have obviously been suggested as a potential therapy for some time, and a couple of months ago the recovery trial was released, which was really the first large-scale evidence around the potential benefits. What did that show? Well, the recovery trial was a, uh, a massive effort um, by our colleagues in the UK, and I have to congratulate them on what they were able to do in such a short um, period of time. They were able to... Um, study corticosteroids in a, in a multi-arm uh, design. So 6,000 patients uh, were included. Um, but relevant for this discussion is the fact that uh, 1,000 of them um, had mechanical ventilation at baseline. So they more um, more represented uh, the cohort that we have in, in, in REMAP-CAP. Um, in the study as a whole, they showed a positive result for the use of low-dose dexamethasone, um, 6 milligrams a day for, for 10 days, but they found that there was a differential treatment effect based on their categorization for severity. So um, those who were mechanically ventilated at baseline uh, were found to have the strongest treatment effect. Those that were on oxygen uh, but not yet mechanically ventilated, which is quite a range of severity, uh, were found to have a, a modest effect but still statistically significant. And those that were not yet were in hospital but not yet requiring oxygen, uh, there was no benefit. In fact, there was a trend towards potential harm. So it's quite important to think about where the optimal time for commencement of steroids is based on that. And the data that we've come uh, forward with now from REMAP-CAP and other studies that are uh, going to be uh, published uh, at the same time um, help us um, work out where, where that point might best be. So in recovery, the uh, three uh, groups um, came out with quite 
different effects, as I've said, and uh, for the, those who were on mechanical ventilation at baseline, um, there was a significant reduction in 28-day uh, mortality, which was from 41.4% in those not receiving dexamethasone down to 29.3%. And in those that were just on oxygen, uh, the difference was 26.2% uh, falling to 23.3%. So uh, quite a marked um, difference in treatment effect based on, on severity. Colin, REMAP-CAP is an unusual sort of trial. It's one of many that are seeking to provide further detail on this topic. But can you tell us about the background of the trial? Sure, REMAP-CAP uh, has been running for three to four years. Uh, it has um, funding um, in many parts of the world, uh, EU, uh, UK, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and uh, more recently starting in the, in the US. Um, it has initiated um, from the uh, problems we had with H1N1 going back uh, over a decade ago where we found it impossible to be able to uh, activate an interventional uh, trial in the kind of timeframes that a pandemic uh, requires. And so after discussions about d appropriate designs, we moved towards a platform model uh, which was configured to be studying um, community-acquired pneumonia, which is uh, obviously the most likely kind of scenario that you would see clinically in a respiratory pandemic, uh, which, which might occur in the future. So we designed it uh, around that as a common disease in the ICU. It had uh, a range of treatments that we uh, use um, without clear evidence guidelines and people use different forms of empirical antibiotics. There's a whole question of anti-inflammatory therapies, both with macrolide antibiotics or steroids, as is the case here. And uh, the question of um, anti-influenza antivirals uh, is also uh, somewhat uncertain. So there's lots of different questions and we designed this platform to be able to simultaneously address them. So it's not a sequence of studies, it's a, it's a multifactorial design where patients get assigned uh, treatments within each uh, domain where there is a question. And we combine those treatments that have been randomly assigned and describe that as a, as a regimen, so a combination of treatments. And the analysis is done at that level of the regimen, the combination. That means that we can determine not only what the effects are of individual therapies, but also how that effect is modified by the interactions that might be provided by other randomised uh, treatments. The design was uh, set up so that we could adapt if a pandemic arose and uh, we were in a, a reasonably good position um, back in uh, February of this year when uh, COVID-19 um, came upon us and we've worked very hard to switch the uh, aim of the, of the trial to be much more focused on COVID. We're still enrolling patients with non-suspected uh, COVID community-acquired pneumonia and that part of the, the trial continues, but it's been a major focus to open up new domains where there are questions relating to COVID-19 and to use this system that we have, have put in place uh, to try and address those questions. The, the trial uses um, a Bayesian statistical model, uh, which means that uh, we're able to run that on a regular basis as uh, without a fixed sample size. And this is the way the uh, Bayesian stats can work. We continue to accrue data. Uh, we modify the probabilities that are, um, there is a, a difference between 
the intervention arms and continue to recruit based on those accruing probabilities. That's called response adaptive randomization. So that patients that are newly recruited to the trial have their randomization probabilities assigned based on the outcomes from the previous uh, cohort or, or the, the accruing uh, uh, numbers prior to them so that uh, treatments which are looking like they may uh, be more uh, more beneficial are given more frequently to future patients. So there's a participation benefit uh, from being in the trial as well, uh, as well as the um, benefit to uh, getting to the answer uh, as soon as possible uh, using a no fixed sample size uh, approach. Now, Colin, you refer to this as a, a Bayesian adaptive platform trial. It's, the data is presented statistically in a different way to the way it usually would be in frequentist statistics. Can you tell us about that? How, how does that all work for people who aren't familiar with Bayesian analysis? Sure. The standard approach using a frequentist uh, model is that a null hypothesis is uh, established that there is no difference between uh, two arms in a simple two-arm trial, say. Uh, data, a, an estimate of um, what the treatment effect might be is used to set a sample size and uh, patients are randomised in equal proportion to those two treatments and data is accrued based on the primary outcome. Once a sample size uh, has been completed, the data is analysed and a statistical test undertaken to determine the probability that that data uh, of the outcome uh, could have occurred assuming the null hypothesis was correct. And so the conclusion is whether you have or have not been able to reject the null hypothesis at a particular level of statistical confidence, um, typically 0.05. So what you're doing, you get a binary result, have you or have you not rejected the null hypothesis? And uh, that's a very arbitrary line line to draw and is... Um, uh, doesn't help as much as it could with regard to clinical decision making where we're constantly operating in a, in a, in a setting of uh, balance of probabilities or you know, choosing which is the better of a range of, range of options. In comparison, um, a Bayesian approach uh, starts with whatever prior knowledge um, we currently have uh, and for the trial that we're doing, we have assumed uh, in, in all of our domains that, we, uh, that there is no difference between in, any of the, uh, the treatment interventions in a, in a domain, although we could use uh, prior knowledge from previous studies if necessary, but we've assumed no, no difference. And then as I was explaining, that data uh, patients are assigned between those um, treatments, uh, outcomes are measured, and that data is fed back into the statistical model. And it takes what we call the, the prior uh, probability, which in our case was balanced, and adds the accruing data to that to produce a posterior probability, uh, which is the probability that whatever outcome you're looking for, in our case we're looking for superiority um, of one intervention against all of the others, including no treatment, or uh, efficacy where any one treatment is better than none. So what we get out of that is a uh, an accruing probability that that superiority exists. 
and we describe that um, as a percentage probability and as uh, data accrues, um, that percentage uh, steadily rises. And so we end up with a, a, an outcome which is a, proportion, a per percentage probability that a treatment is better than not giving that treatment, which is exactly what a clinician needs to know. Colin, in this particular domain, uh, the corticosteroids domain, what was studied? What were the patient groups? What were the interventions? And can you tell us about the endpoint that you used? So in the corticosteroid domain for um, REMAP-CAP, um, we had already established this for um, non-pandemic patients um, prior to the beginning of this year, and we continued on with those um, in interventions um, in the in the COVID-19 uh, suspected or proven uh, group. Those interventions were no hydrocortisone, uh, fixed dose hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams, uh, six hourly given for seven days, which is the same um, overall dosing schedule that was used in the adrenal study. And then a third arm, uh, which gave steroids when the clinician uh, considered the patient to have septic shock. So the same dosing, 50 milligrams, six hourly, uh, hydrocortisone, but only commenced when the patient was thought to be in septic shock and discontinued when the clinician felt that the septic shock had uh, resolved. So those were the three uh, treatment arms. They were pre-existing prior to COVID-19, and we continued them on uh, once uh, COVID became established and uh, we started recruiting patients uh, with that disease as well. So the data that's um, the basis of the, the papers that have just been published uh, are those three in interventions. The patient group uh, are those uh, who qualified um, for the trial on the basis of being in the ICU and requiring organ support, which we defined as um, oxygenation support with high flow oxygen at 40% or higher, uh, mechanical ventilation or any other form of uh, non-invasive mechanical ventilation, or vasopressor support. The endpoint uh, was um, changed um, from our prior uh, platform for community-acquired pneumonia. We had set that up for a very patient-centred outcome of 90-day all-cause mortality. Uh, but in the COVID-19 world, 90 days is a very long time. And we realised that we needed to have a faster uh, loop uh, with our Bayesian and uh, adaptive uh, statistical model. So we changed that uh, outcome, and this applies across all of the... Uh, interventional domains uh, focused on COVID-19 to be an ordinal scale combining in-hospital mortality and the time required on organ support in the ICU. So this is a ranked scale uh, with mortality um, as the worst outcome and then the number of days uh, free of ICU organ support um, through to day 21. So the ordinal scale runs from minus one and then zero days free, i.e. someone that was on organ support for the full three weeks, and then reducing number of uh, or increasing number of days free, uh, one, two, three, four, all the way to to 21. So it's a it's a ranked scale, and the analysis was uh, done to determine the odds of a patient. Uh, 
having an improvement in their position on that scale. Colin, um, many of the clinicians listening to this podcast would be familiar with the composite outcome of this type, for example, ventilator-free days, which has been used in many respiratory-type conditions and studies thereof. Um, but you've allocated minus one days to people who died during the trial, which is a little unusual. Can you explain the rationale for this? Well, because it's an ordinal scale, it was just a way of including uh, the worst outcome on a scale that was otherwise in days. So it's not really minus one days. It's actually a point on, on a scale of um, severity of outcome. Uh, so it's just the one that is one, the next one worse than being on organ support for the full three weeks is that you died in hospital. And the statistical uh, analysis looks for the probability that a patient will improve on that scale. So any improvement, so an improvement can go from minus one to, to naught or you know, five to seven or whatever. It's, so it's just a, a way of ensuring that death is ranked at the appropriate point on that, on that continuum. Joining me today is Colin MacArthur, New Zealand lead for the Remap CAP study. A free online journal review of this study, along with dozens of other modules and podcasts, can be found at our website at www.oslocommunity.com. Colin, the results of the remap cap uh, corticosteroid domain are being released today, and we're very privileged to be able to talk to you about those. Can you tell us what the findings of the study were? Sure. So we analysed um, all of the patients that um, with suspected or proven uh, COVID-19 that had been um, allocated treatment across any of our, our domains. Uh, that was... Um, uh, a total of uh, 614 uh, patients, and within that 614 patients, uh, 403 had been randomised to the three uh, steroid treatments with hydrocortisone that we described, described earlier. Our primary analysis uh, was, is able to include all of those, those patients, so we can adjust, uh, help the other patients not and not allocated to hydrocortisone uh, can assist in um, uh, the analysis in the in the primary model uh, by uh, helping um, for the um, adaptation um, for those other treatments. So there's an adjustment that's required, um, and because we've got this multifactorial model, we can adjust for co-administered assigned therapies. So our primary analysis was based um, on the whole, the whole model, and we did a secondary analysis based on the 403 uh, patients allocated treatment um, in the hydrocortisone um, uh, options. Those results are very, very similar, but we do present um, both of them in the in the paper. Now, the number of patients uh, was not as large as we wanted. Um, and, and thought we would need to, to draw a conclusion. And the reason we didn't get that is because the recovery trial uh, was published, uh, or at least it came out in a press release, uh, the, the new way that medical knowledge uh, comes to, to the fore, uh, in early June. And so the day following those uh, results being published, uh, which were strongly suggestive um, of a benefit for corticosteroids, uh, we agreed that um, we had there would not be equipoise to continue randomising uh, patients to to not receive um, hydrocortisone. So we discontinued uh, this domain for patients with suspected or uh, proven COVID nineteen. 
So we ended up with 403 patients, um, which we present today uh, in, in the article in, in, in JAMA. So the results we uh, found in that was that we had reasonable balance be between the groups. And uh, the, the headline uh, result is that uh, we found a 93% probability of a, the fixed dose regimen, um, seven days of hydrocortisone, uh, was superior uh, to no hydrocortisone. And that's an immediately applicable um, result that clinicians can, can consider. There's a 93% chance that uh, this therapy is better than not not giving it, and it's quite a different way of uh, looking at results, and I, I feel a bit more intuitive uh, for clinicians uh, when they're considering what, what treatment would be appropriate for um, their patients. This meant, however, that uh, the, we had not continued to accrue data and, and modify the, this posterior probability uh, to reach our preset um, statistical threshold, which was a 99% probability. Uh, that doesn't um, mean we shouldn't be presenting these results. I think they are still very useful, uh, even on their own, um, but they have also been um, put in combination with uh, several other studies in the meta-analysis, which has been simultaneously published, which allows us to uh, look at the combined results, which do show uh, consistent benefit um, for uh, both dexamethasone and hydrocortisone. Colin, there's a 93% chance that um, treatment with hydrocortisone is better than no treatment with hydrocortisone, but what does this mean from a magnitude of benefit perspective? So our findings with our, our study uh, alone um, gives an odds ratio. The uh, point estimate is 1.3 uh, of an odds ratio um, that there would be an improvement in that ordinal scale. So that gives people a bit of, bit of an idea, um, close to a 50% um, improvement um, in your position on the, on the ordinal scale with a 93% uh, probability. Was there any um, suggestion that any particular subgroup uh, does better, particularly those based on severity of illness at the time of randomisation? Yes, well, that was one of the things that um, is particularly notable in our study and also in the others um, that have been included in the, uh, the meta-analysis. And we found that um, the magnitude of benefit was uh, greatest in patients who were not ventilated at baseline and were and or were not receiving vasopressors at, at baseline. These were all patients who were in the ICU, so they would have been a, a mixture of patients receiving um, oxygen support uh, without vasopressor support, uh, for example. The numbers uh, were not large, um, which means we have some uncertainty uh, about this, but the um, trend was very strong that those were the patients who benefited the most. And we, uh, we hypothesise that this may be the group that has also been identified in the recovery data where they have, a, where they have combined the non-ventilated group into a, a range of oxygen of any sort right through to ventilation. And we, our data would suggest that that recovery result of kind of a more modest effect is a combination of a strong effect that we demonstrated 
in that NICU, critically ill but not yet ventilated group, um, with a less strong effect for patients who are in the ward um, just receiving receiving oxygen. That's uh, an hypothesis rather than something that we've been able to demonstrate. We have no data on patients who are not in the ICU um, to help to, to bring to that. But it was consistent finding um, both in REMAP-CAP and also in the uh, other trials uh, that were able to provide data on ventilated versus not ventilated for the meta-analysis. So it appears that the, the optimal um, benefit, the greatest benefit, is seen in, in patients um, who have reached uh, a, a disease severity where they require a moderate level of oxygen support but are not yet ventilated. A little earlier you mentioned that there are residual concerns around the potential adverse events associated with hydrocortisone and other corticosteroids. What did you find in that regard in this study? Well, because it was an open-label study, um, it does make it difficult to interpret um, the, the results. But uh, we found that um, the two steroid groups um, had 3 and 4% um, incidence of reported adverse events compared to 1% uh, in the no uh, hydrocortisone arm. This is too small a numbers to you know, make any uh, statistical inference and would obviously be um, biased um, because of the open-label uh, nature of the study. So I think we could just say overall that adverse events uh, were, were very low and, and consistent with uh, our usual clinical practice uh, findings with, with steroids in an intensive care population. So taking off your researcher hat for a moment and putting on your experienced um, clinician hat, uh, albeit with a better understanding of the literature than most of us, where would you currently sit in terms of your use of steroids in patients with severe COVID-19? Well, I think the um, res results from recovery were very encouraging, and I think they were probably uh, sufficient for many clinicians to be able to um, start start using them as a, as a therapy. But what we have now uh, with our study, REMAP-CAP, and also with the others that were included in the meta-analysis, so that's a total of three trials with dexamethasone and three trials with um, hydrocortisone, all showing uh, a consistent effect uh, in favour of steroids and a degree of treatment effect which is uh, similar so uh, looking at somewhere around about a 20% uh, reduction in um, relative uh, risk of mortality from say around a bit over 40% uh, down to a little bit over 30% and that uh, in the meta-analysis um, is clearly statistically significant and so I think a consistent finding across multiple trials with the same uh, level of, uh, of effect and reaching strong statistical significance is, is very uh, strong information that we can use for treatment uh, care decisions. So I would recommend that um, patients uh, should be commenced on steroids. It, we found no difference between um, dexamethasone versus hydrocortisone uh, studies in the meta-analysis. The effect was equivalent, so these could be considered a, a, as alternatives. And I think this is uh, what the WHO um, will be releasing today in their guidelines uh, as well. The time of commencement uh, remains um, not entirely clear, but our data would, would suggest that it should be before patients receive or commence on mechanical ventilation and uh, whether that and what degree of oxygenation impairment would be the threshold is still a little bit 
uh, unclear. But I, I would say, as a clinician had, I would say at a moderate level of um, oxygen requiring, let's say, 40 to 50% inspired oxygen to achieve saturations in the, in the low 90s. But that's um, just an empirical guess based on clinical judgment rather than on any data that we have. Colin, finally, um, what can we look forward to now from the remap cap study? What's uh, on the horizon? Well, um, based on this, these findings, we uh, will be considering whether there is a, a possibility of any further questions uh, for for steroids. Uh, but clearly, the main um, question has been answered. Um, we are continuing to uh, recruit in other areas of uh, therapy for COVID-19. So the things that are still running are uh, antiviral uh, therapy with lopinavir ritinavir, although the um, accruing evidence of that um, doesn't look like that's going to have a, have a strong uh, effect. But we are still recruiting um, patients in, into that domain, antiviral domain. We also have immune modulation therapies, um, looking more at specific therapies um, such as anakinra or tocilizumab, and it would be interesting um, to see the change in what their treatment effect is when we now have a baseline of every patient getting steroids, which we would expect to be the case going, going forward. We are further expanding into an important therapeutic area of anticoagulation. Um, increased risk of um, thrombotic complications has been recognised in COVID-19, and so we have an anticoagulation and antiplatelet uh, domains. Uh, the anticoagulation one um, is currently active and, and recruiting, and that compares standard um, VTE prophylaxis with uh, therapeutic anticoagulation. And we will shortly be um, adding in an antiplatelet um, arm, arm to that as well. Um, future um, inter uh, interventional arms uh, will be looking at uh, statins and also um, uh, ACE2 um, uh, and renin-angiotensin um, axis uh, therapies. Now, these are obviously uh, big studies when uh, big study is a team sport. Is there anyone that you'd like to mention at this point in time? Yes, well, uh, th this is very much a global study. Uh, as I said at the beginning, um, we have uh, collaborators uh, right around, around the world. Um, I should mention in particular that we're now extending um, into uh, low- and middle-income uh, countries. We have collaborators uh, that are working uh, and to be joining shortly um, with the anticoagulation domain in India, Pakistan and, and Nepal, and there's some possibility of some um, hospitals in, in Africa uh, joining in. So it very much is a, a global um, effort. Um, there is a kind of a core leading group um, uh, in the in the countries that have joined earlier on um, in the, the UK, uh, EU, Canada, US, Australia, uh, and, and New Zealand. And perhaps a special shout out to. Um, uh, Yasin Arabi and his team in Saudi Arabia, uh, who joined uh, relatively recently, um, but have been a very, very, very strong supporters. Colin, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, and congratulations to you and all of the Remap Cap team for this uh, fantastic study, and best wishes for the rest of the project. Great, thank you very much, Todd. Good talking to you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, please visit our website at www.oslocommunity.com.